Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Karen Newton. She is a wealth manager, author, international speaker. This lady has bundles of knowledge. Hello, welcome to the show, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm really well, Aaron, and thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Karen, where did you grow up in? Ah, well, (laughs) I was born in London, UK, that is. My parents moved to Wales when I was about five years old, so I was raised in Wales. He uh, did an exchange into France for a little while, so I've had quite a bit of a mixture there for growing up. And why, why France? I was learning French at school, and it was an opportunity to do a straight exchange with a family. And the family I stayed with, um, trying to think, he was... I, I get it mixed up. I think she was Polish and he was Spanish and the common language was French. There was no English spoke at all. He would just uh, say to me if I was doing something wrong, it was kaput. Whatever I was doing was kaput. <laughs> they had a dairy, you know, one of those corner stores. Yeah. And I used to work in there after I went to school. I'd be in the dairy afterwards and I shortchanged so many people because I couldn't count in French that they sat me down taught me my numbers and uh, yeah people were a bit happier than when I was behind the counter serving. And were your parents nervous of you going over to France for that period of time? Probably but they they never said anything about it. My parents were really fantastic that you get opportunities you take them nobody tells you you can't do anything and the attitude was you go for it. My dad had an old dictionary I still got it here today it doesn't have the word can't in it 
modern ones do, but this is an old one, and the word can't isn't in there. And what he would do is if I told him I couldn't do something, he'd hand me the dictionary and ask me to look up the word can't. And when I admit that it wasn't in there, he'd say, right. So it's either you don't want to do it or you don't know how to do it. If it was I didn't, if it was I couldn't do it, it was like a kick up the backside, right, you got to go and do it now. So I started saying I didn't know how to do it, which meant he'd help me. And then he'd say to me, oh, we've done this about three or four times. You should know how to do it by now. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was really good that way. My mum, because I was uh, born 1959, so I'm um, 61 this year. And my mum was from the era when you got married, you had kids, your husband went out to work and she said to me, you just go and do whatever you want to do and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. So whenever opportunities came up, they just supported me 100%. It's great to have parents that support you 100% and want you to become the best successful version of yourself. Oh, I think it laid the groundwork for so much that I do because I can still hear my dad saying, there's no such word as can't. <laughs> and I can hear my mum there saying, you don't tell my daughter she can't do anything. So, you know, it's... It's brilliant. And with my own daughter, I sort of find myself saying some of the things to my daughter and uh, thinking, wow, I remember my mum doing that and saying that. You know, it's funny as as children, we want to be our individual self, but when we get older and wiser, we we become a version of our parents in some some way, I think, you know. I know, it's, it's so funny because only a couple of weeks ago, my daughter said to me, God, you sound like your mum. And I said to her, how on earth do you know that? Because you don't know my mum, because my, my daughter's adopted. And my mum died before we adopted her. And it was just the way she came out and said, God, you sound like your mum. And I was thinking, how on earth do you know that? <laughs> Karen, you went and did a secondary level school and you, did you go and do university after that or did you go straight into a job? Or No, I actually didn't go on to university. I actually failed my O-levels, which is what we took at that time was O-levels. I failed every one of them. And so I went back to school in the um, next year and I resat them. Um, I got five passes and then I did what I think is now equivalent. I'm, I'm not really au fait with the schooling system, but I think it's equivalent to the AS. I did that in history and statistics. And then I saw a job come up with the civil service and it was working in the Office for National Statistics. And at the time, I think it was one in eight people were unemployed in Wales. And I thought, right, I'll go for the job. So I went along for an interview and they said, we'll be back in contact with you. And a couple of weeks later, I get a letter from Inland Revenue saying you've uh, been employed in Inland Revenue. So I went to work for Inland Revenue. And what did, what did that job teach you as an indi individual? Actually, that I was good with numbers. I'm not strong on maths, but I, I see a lot of trends and patterns in numbers. And if I if I go back a little bit, I was a tennis player. I loved tennis, and I just my dream was to be a professional tennis player. I injured my wrist, uh, severed a ligament in my wrist, and I had to have surgery on it. So what happened was the dream of being a tennis player basically was gone, and I had to look for a job. When I went into Inland Revenue, it was the first time that I'd thought of anything outside of playing tennis. 
and I found that I had a, a knack for seeing trends. And what Inland Revenue did was I started working in pay-as-you-earn, but when they saw that I was picking up trends, they actually moved me to self-employed, and I was looking at accounts, and um, the system is totally different to what it is now, but I did what was called appeals, so uh, what companies and individuals who didn't put their tax returns in by the due date, we created tax returns for them, and then they had the right to appeal against it and it went to a court. And I had the job of going through those accounts and getting everything ready to go through to court. And it was then I'd be looking at things and I'd be going to my bosses saying, have you noticed that they're doing this or doing that or doing something else with the accounts? I don't think they should be doing this. And then they say, oh, go and get the next accounts and go and get the next accounts. And I was actually picking up trends of things that weren't supposed to be applied for, if you like, or exemptions that people were trying to claim for that they weren't entitled to claim for. Showed you how the unfortunate of tennis kind of gave you another insight in, in how you did in the trends of, of numbers. I am a strong believer that one door closes, another door opens. But what I say is one door has to close before another door can open. And in processing the numbers for the courts, did you feel that you had a huge responsibility to get them right so so the cases can go on or do you just enjoy the, the trends? No, I was more, I was clerical. Ad, what we'd call admin now and so I had someone who was above me so I put everything together and I would put my stuff together and then somebody else would actually go through that so I didn't actually take it into court as someone else did and they would have to run through my numbers and be familiar with the cases before it went to court. Through childhood and teenagers and uh, in your mature in your mid-twenties did you discover you had a, a, a passion for numbers and maths or is this something you discovered later? No, it's, um, I've sort of fallen into it. I think it's a way to describe it. I, I can't say that I uh, noticed anything. Like I said, tennis was my passion. That was all I really wanted to do was tennis when I was younger. I got married when I was 21. My husband's a New Zealander and we moved to New Zealand to live. And I went into banking and I just found that I seemed to have gravitated around numbers but my strength is systems. I'm very much a systems person. Anything that can be systemized, I systemize it. In, in what way? I can go into a business and I can look at a business and look at the way their system operates. And I can say, if you do this, do that, do the other, it'll save you a lot of time, reduce your cost and make it much easier for you to operate your business. I do similar sorts of things at home as well. Things that you do every day, like doing washing, okay? Um, most people would split their washing into different colors. They'd put the wash load on. They will then hang it out to dry and then they'll iron it, bring it in, iron it. I'm one of those people. It goes in a washer dryer and <laughs> everything goes in together. As long as the colors don't run, everything goes in together. It all comes out and it only gets ironed when I'm about to wear it. So it's altering the way, looking at the way people perceive is an idea to do something and a habit, if you like, that they've gone into. And I look at ways of making that simpler and easier to create more time. Yeah, numbers can be com complex. And I love your analogy with the, the washing. It's, 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 a, it's a cool way to describe it. I love it. <laughs> well, it is. It's genuine. It's what I've done. <laughs> 
put it in layman's terms for for everyone that can understand it in a in a simple way. I love it. Well, hopefully they do because it's. Um, I've got a new book coming out shortly, and it's one of the examples I've put into the book. So hopefully people understand it. You're living in the UK. What was enjoy the fact you were going to move to New Zealand, or was that a, a trip that kind of came out of the blue? No, well, I met my husband. He said to me, "I don't want to live in the UK. I, I intend to go back to New Zealand." I said, "That's fine." I was one of those people. I love travel. I get restless when I'm in a place for too long. I'd always said I didn't want to live where I was in Wales. My mum knew that I wasn't going to stay where I was in Wales. My dad knew it. The whole family knew it. I, did, I made no secret of it. But I wasn't actively looking to go somewhere. But when I met my husband, he was a New Zealander. It was just, right, we're off to New Zealand and it was fine. That's where we're going. You must have felt odd going to the other part of the world. Uh, no, it's really strange because I love traveling so much that it doesn't bother me where I am. You know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I'd like to go and do that, but I, I don't have the courage to do it. Or they say to me, oh, you've been courageous because you've gone to all these countries. Well, it's not. I just love traveling so much and it was an opportunity to go. And that's exactly what I do. You know, I live in Spain now and I, I just packed up and went. And when you went to New Zealand, were you working at the time or did you go get a job? Or Well, I finished work with Inland Revenue because I knew I was going to New Zealand. I packed up just... I think it was just about a month before we moved. And then when I got to New Zealand, I had no idea what I was going to do. A friend of my husband's family said, look, I've got a temporary job going in a bank. Would you like to come and try that job? He said, I can't guarantee you anything permanent, but, you know, I can get you in on a temporary job. So I went. I started the very first day the first ATM went in in New Zealand and it went into the bank that I was working at. And the job they took me on to do was to teach people how to use ATMs. That contract finished after, I can't remember, I think it was about three or four months that job finished and they didn't have anything else available. But a couple of weeks later, they came back and said, we've got a job, a part-time job that's come up in accounting. Are you interested in that? So I leapt at that work part-time for a couple of years with them and then they offered me full-time. That must have been cool to teach people how to use the ATM for the first time in the bank. For someone who's not technology-minded, it was it was stressful because I have to admit technology just sort of goes over my head. You know, we, we've got a, t a DVD player and it's my husband who has to switch it on or set stuff up on the TV because technology just goes straight over my head. It was a job and I needed a job and yeah, that's what I did. And when you went to accounting, do you feel like I don't have a qualification in accounting, this would be over my head, but, do, but yet you probably felt I have a, a passion and no trends and numbers at the same time? The accounting job that they gave me wasn't actually accounting. What happened was, in the old days, I'm talking about the old days, you have a check and the check has an, a magnetic strip that goes across the bottom. So all the numbers you see on the bottom of a check are magnetic ink and they go through a machine that records what they are and knows which account to then debit. And what I had to do was encode the amount of the check onto the check with magnetic ink and we had a special machine so my starting in accounting was 
putting the numbers on the checks and balancing the amount of the checks up at the end of the day. And then they would go through to what we called Interbank, which was a processing centre that split the checks up to go to the correct banks and in the correct bank accounts. So that was how I started. And then what they did was they moved me um, into IT department. We, there was no such thing as an IT department then. It was a new thing that was set up and they decided that these checks went into the IT. So I became part of IT. I then started putting mortgages onto the computer system. I then moved to the mortgage department where I was running everything, moving it all on to computerization. Because it was such a young bank, just before I started with the bank, they were a savings bank and they'd been operating out of a caravan because they were just starting. And then they moved into premises when the first ATM went in and they were a bank that grew. And this is back in 83. We were the most advanced bank in the world. We had online banking there and then. It had never been heard of before. We had people coming from all around the world to have a look at the system that we were operating because it was genuine online banking. And when the ATM went in, clients could actually deposit money into the bank and the money was already showing in their bank accounts. Now, that hasn't come in until the 21st century in a lot of the countries. And yet we were doing that in New Zealand back in 82. So I had a chance to grow with a bank that was growing. And each time I got a promotion along the way, I moved into different areas of the bank and I learned a phenomenal amount of stuff in banking. Wow, it sounds like you got an alphabetical uh, education of how how a bank works. And at the same time, you guys were ahead of the curve in the tech as well. It was incredible. I tell people that in the mid-1990s in New Zealand, I had a mobile phone which I could link to my computer and I could run my computer through my mobile phone anywhere in New Zealand. That kind of technology has been a long, long time coming into the UK and into other parts of the world. But New Zealand was a very small country. They're just under 5 million population now. And when I first went there, it was 3 million. And it was like the testing ground for all new technology that came out. And so we were just so way ahead of the rest of the world. It was almost like someone develops something, New Zealand tests it, and they've got a small population that will test it and if it works it gets released to other countries i never thought that i would assume new zealand for its sports its lamb its its countryside but never as a technology testing ground that's fascinating yeah we we just had everything you know like i said i had a mobile phone connected to a laptop in the mid 90s and i would travel anywhere around new zealand and i could run my laptop and get my emails um all that sort of thing which people did not get until much later in other parts of the world. So you're creating this amazing virtual system in the bank and you're probably climbing up as well as the bank is is growing but when was the turn when you had your your car crash? How did that come about? Uh, Oh, I I was working in one of the branches. I was um, a senior supervisor assistant manager and I was just driving home from work And what happened was the other driver went through a stop sign. My car hit the front wheels, 
went up in the air, hit the back wheel, went into a somersault and got hit by other cars coming in opposite directions. So basically, there wasn't much in my body that wasn't broken. The only thing that saved me was the car I had. I'd borrowed off a friend because mine was being serviced and that car had a roll cage in it and because it, the friend I borrowed off did um, motorsport. So I was sat in a racing seat with a four-way harness and a roll cage. And it was basically the only thing that saved me that day. Sounds like someone was looking after you that day. If you were, if if you were able to survive it and say this is this is the reason why, you know. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. The car was towed right off. Yeah, so um, I was lucky that I got out of that. You probably ran straight to hospital and they did all sorts of tests on you. And when did the realization come that I've damaged something or something's broken or? I don't remember anything of the accident. All I remember is going down the road and having this white flash in front of me and then waking up in the hospital. And the white flash was because it was a white car that went through a stop sign. So the actual accident itself, I have no memory. I only know what they were able to put together. You know, what the police told me had actually happened when they were interviewing people. And some of the people who were behind me on the road, uh, they were clients and they said, we saw this happen and we saw that happen. So I actually have no memory of the accident itself. All I've got is the information that other people have given me. When you were in the hospital, did the doctor say what, what happened to you or what was wrong with you? Or did you survive it and kind of tell the tale? Or I was told that... There was nothing more they could do for me. I couldn't walk. There was lots of talks about doing things. So the the system was really strange because I was in the hospital. Then I got released to my GP, but my GP was actually overseas at the time training. And I was working with a locum doctor and he was absolutely fantastic. And he would say, right, we're going to try to do this. We're going to try to do that. He put me in all these different things and things weren't working. Um, I couldn't walk. I couldn't uh, move my right arm. I had problems with my speech. Um, At one stage, it looked like they were going to remove my kneecap because the key in the ignition had gone straight through the kneecap and it had damaged the two bones underneath. They got infected and were all ulcerated. They, They were just trying different things but nobody really knew what to do and then my GP came back and he said that he wanted to send me to a psychiatrist so the psychiatrist could help me understand that what I had was what I had and I couldn't get any better and so I went along to the psychiatrist and he said to me you know, how do you feel about coming here? And I was, well, I just want you to go back and tell my GP that, you know, there's something wrong with me and I need help to um, get better. And he said, okay. So he said, let's have a chat. So we had a, a session. And then he said to me, would you be prepared to come back again? And I said, well, you know, if you think I need to come back, I will come back. And he said, right, see you in a week's time. So I went back a week later and he said to me, a friend of mine is a surgeon he specializes in sporting injuries would you be prepared to see him 
And I said, yes. I said, I'm happy to see anybody if they can help me. He said, I'm glad you said that because he's in the next room waiting to see you. So I went in the next room, saw him. I was in um, hospital the next day for surgeries. And that was really the start of my starting to get back to learning to walk again. And we sort of built a team of people around me and it was five minutes every hour I had something to do and it took me two years to get back on my feet again. In those two years you probably felt like your life and walking and the things you were so used to before would would be gone and that must have been a, a scary time for you as well. At the time no I don't really know how to explain it because I think you have to be in a similar situation to actually understand but As a person, you deal with a lot of people around you and you're like an outgoing person. But as soon as the accident happened, I had to become an in-person. Everything had to go inside me and I had to focus 100% on me. I, I don't know if that makes sense. And what I did then was that I couldn't work One of the things I found was, and you probably understand this because you're a sports person, when there's stresses around you with sport, you're actually able to move yourself up different levels. When I had the accident, I didn't have the capacity to move up those levels. I just couldn't cope with anything and I had to focus 100% on me. I had to shut everything else out and the focus went this is what I've got to do, I know I've got to do this, and the concentration was there. It was only when I started to be able to think about going back to work that I realised I couldn't cope with work anymore. It hadn't actually entered my mind at that stage because I was 100% focused on walking. It sounds like you achieved that, and that which is fantastic to hear. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have the right team around me and if I didn't have my husband because the support I got from them was just phenomenal. The surgeon just said to me, why do you want to walk again? And I said to him, I want to get back on the tennis court and I want to ski again. And he went, oh my God, the two worst things you could want to do. But he said, if you're prepared to have a go at it, then I will help you the best I can. And that was the focus. I was getting back on the tennis court. I was going to ski. Five years to get back on the tennis court, seven years to get back on skis. It, it shows us how, how valuable a team of experts around us can be to achieve what we need to achieve. I don't believe anybody can do anything on their own. Whatever you do in life, you've got a team around you. And if you haven't got that team and you haven't got the right team, then you won't achieve whatever it is you want in life. You have to have a team. How, how did it feel when you got back on the tennis court a couple of years later? I was relieved that I'd done it, but I can't play tennis. Uh, Ten minutes, that was all I could do. The damage that is in my knee meant that if I tried to keep playing, then I would have ended up having to have replacement knee surgery. I'd been in to the surgeon several times. I'd had surgery. He wanted to do a lot more work on the knee. And I said to him, look, I'll make an agreement with you. I won't complain about the pain. You won't do any more surgery. And he said, OK. So I was not going to admit that I couldn't play tennis because the leg was just in a mess. I'd, I'd had enough of surgery at that stage. So I just said, right, that's it. I've just got to acknowledge I'm not going to play tennis anymore. And, and did you get back on the slopes for the skiing? If 
you can call it skiing, yes, I glide. It takes me a long time to set up a turn because I can't wait and unweight the leg, what I call traditional skiing. So I have to set up a, a turn and then I glide and I go back across the mountain and set up the next one. My husband will be on his fifth run down the mountain and I still haven't got halfway down. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm on there, but it's not skiing. Why do you like skiing? I love the cold and the snow and I love the extremes of the weathers. So I love being up the mountain in the snow, in the cold weather. That's one extreme. And then I love being here in Spain. I'm on the beach. I live right down the beach. We get really hot temperatures. So I've got the extremes and I just love the changes. After this uh, two years and life is starting to get back up, did you go back to work or did you decide to do something different? What, what, what um, I tried to go back and I couldn't cope with the pressure. I had lost that ability to actually move up through different pressure levels. Part of it is the nerve damage that's been done, the brain damage and all that, and I couldn't move up. So I got to the stage where I had to hand in my notice and say, look, I can't cope with this anymore. I wasn't prepared to tell them that. I told them I had all these other opportunities opened up to me. Yeah, so I left banking, um, went to work. My husband and I set up our own business and we started running our own business. And that was 28 years ago. And I've been self-employed or an investor ever since. It must, it must have felt scary going from something that's so secure to something that is unsecure at the same time. Yeah, because there was no money. So we had to make the money. It was the only way we had to make the business work. Otherwise, we had no money coming in. How do you guys make it work? I'm really good on the admin side and systems. So when we look at things, I can do things really well to speed up, make it more efficient. My husband is a natural salesman for his own business, I'd say, because um, when we set the business up, he had a 98% strike rate on uh, converting quotes into sales. It's quite funny because um, as we were growing the business, we brought in a sales team and they were running around about 60, 65% strike rate. And I thought, God, this is no good. Yeah, so I went and got a trainer to train the sales team. And the trainer came back and he said, you've got a pretty good team there. And I'm saying, but hang on, my husband does 98% and they're doing 60 or 65%. And he said, yeah, but what your husband does is not normal. <laughs> But it was a new benchmark I had for sales. <laughs> and with the with the business, when you got your first sale, how did it feel? It was really good because what happened was my husband worked for a company. And when he left, uh, some of the clients rang him up and he said, look, I'm sorry, I do not work for the company anymore. And they said, well, the only reason we're with that company is because of you. And we want you to continue looking after our systems for us. And he tried to resist it. And then basically about a week later, we were in business because all these people were saying, we want you to continue looking after our systems. Nobody else can. And so we were in business. So there wasn't really such a celebration of having the first client. It was more a necessity. Um, the clients wanted us rather than the other way around. And what made your systems better than anyone else? My husband is in, um, well, the business was fire protection and my husband was regarded as a top technician in the Southern Hemisphere. He was the only person that could go and test fire alarm systems or do fire alarm systems on ships. He 
thinks totally differently to most people so that when you had to put um, sprinklers or alarm systems in and people had designer places, he could do a lot more aesthetic stuff and he could work around systems and make the place look better for them while making sure everything complied to the regulations. I see now why you guys were different. You thought outside the box. Yeah. And he's, he's really good at that. And I think that's what you need. Someone that can look outside the box and someone that can look in and combine it together to combine the two views at the same time. Yeah, well, my husband is severely dyslexic. And so I provide all the administration. I do all the reading the contracts and all that sort of thing for him. He's very much the hands-on person. So we complement one another. And investing, did that come after your first business or did that kind of collide together? Well, it sort of came with the accident because we did need to make a little bit of money and we were trying to find a way to do it. So we started, I say we, I started studying all sorts of things and trying to find out more about investing and how we could make money and what we could do and all that. So I started learning and I came up with this formula of uh, having a business and then moving it into property, into shares and into um, bullion. So the business, that was basically a fluke because of my husband leaving. The business started. Then property, uh, we weren't quite sure how to get into property. And that was a few years down the track. Shares, I'd always loved shares when I worked in the bank. I loved the markets, the money markets, everything that we dealt with in the bank. I loved that. So I'd always had an interest in shares. So it was very much a lot of things sort of fell together. When I went into the business with my husband full time, I started, he asked me to start with, although my husband was a top technician, the competitors didn't like us because we were a one-man band, right? And they were big corporate companies. But after we'd been around for a few years and we grew phenomenally in that time, they began to recognize that, hey, this is a company that's here. So they invited us to join this association. My husband then said to me, uh, you go and do all the association stuff, you do all the admin stuff, the meetings, all that sort of thing. He said, I will stick with the contracts and the clients. So uh, I took over. When we set the company up, I actually made history by being the first woman in New Zealand to be a director of a fire protection company. I went to my first meeting with the association and <laughs> I sat there and the chairman walked in. I was the only woman in the room. The chairman walked in, saw me, walked straight back out, looked at the name over the room, came back in and said to me, are you sure you're in the right place? I went, yeah, I'm pretty certain. Got like this 20 question session off him. He wouldn't talk to me for the whole of the meeting. And if I asked a question, he totally ignored me. I then later, a few months later, people got used to me being there. They came to me and asked me would I stand as chairman for the association. I did that. I became, made history by becoming the first female chair of the association. I just found that all it took was systems. <laughs> they had no systems in place and I'm a systems person. So um, I just put lots of systems in place and the association just flew. But my business flew as well because I was making sure that some of the systems suited what my business needed. In learning how to invest, which was your first introduction into investing? A book by um, Noel Whitaker and Roger Moses, which is called Making Money Made Simple. 
One is an Australian and the other is a Kiwi. And Roger Moses is a Kiwi, the New Zealander. And I went to his business because he had an investing business and he started teaching me um, peer-to-peer lending, which we're talking in the 80s peer-to-peer lending, which is, I think it sort of came into its own around about 2008 in the UK when we had the credit crunch. So again, New Zealand was way ahead of the market and what it was doing and I started learning there. I loved, like I said, I love shares. I learned a lot through the bank about uh, compounding interest, which with the bank, because we had money market investments, I soon worked out that you might get a slightly higher interest over 12 months. But if you took the interest rate that was being offered on, say, a 30-day investment, I could add the interest on and I could reinvest that and make more money over 12 months than if I took the higher interest rate because of the compounding effect. So there were lots of different avenues that came in to teach me things. Within the business, I got making money made simple, making more money made simple, and living well in retirement. They were all by the same author. And then in 99, I think it was, that Robert Kiyosaki launched his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And a friend said to me, you need to read this. And he gave me the book. Uh, He actually gave me Cashflow Quadrant. And then I dived out and I got uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then he came back to me a couple of uh, weeks later and said, Robert Kiyosaki's in Auckland. Would you like to go and see him? So we got some tickets. My husband and I drove up there and saw him, had a chat with him afterwards. The mind was made up. We were doing things totally differently. At the Robert Kiyosaki event, he was launching a new book. We bought that book, which is Rich Dad's Guide to Investing. We got home. We took the next day off work. We read the book cover to cover. We went through it a couple of times. We put this plan together, and that was the plan. That was what we were doing, and it's exactly what we did. Describe to us how you made your first investments. I talk about UK because we left New Zealand because we had the business and we had a property that we had as a, a skiing place, which we rented out. So we were doing a little bit. We decided that after reading Robert Kiyosaki's book, we didn't have a big enough market in New Zealand and we wanted to change. So we moved to Australia. It was in Australia. We hadn't been there We were only there a weekend when my mum died and we went back to the UK for her funeral. And it was during that time that I lost six members of my family in eight months. So we ended up staying in UK. So what happened was we were living with my stepdad and there was a property opposite. Now, he was in his 70s and he didn't really want to be on his own. And my husband and I wanted our own place. So we made the decision that there was an empty property opposite and we would do our best to buy that property. We went to the bank and the bank said, you both need to work and you need to have this amount of money coming in and then you can have a mortgage for X amount. So I went and got a job. I got turned down for loads of jobs, uh, basically because I was overqualified and all I wanted was a basic job. So I went into this company and I got a job with them. My husband went to another company and he got a job as a security guard and that gave us the income that we needed to be able to buy the property property opposite had been on the market for five years. The guy that owned it had died and all the estate had been left to a group of um, kids. 
So there was a bit of negotiation going on and they had it on the market for about 54,000. We went to them and said, look, um, will you give us what's called a gifted deposit? Because we've got a mortgage, but we'd like a gifted deposit. And they said, no. So we kept an eye on the property. It dropped in price a couple of months later, went back, made the same offer. The property was down to 50,000 and we got turned down again. Um, the property went down to 45,000, got turned down again. It went down to 39,000 and it was put on the market with a gifted deposit. So we were in there like a shot. And that was the very first property that we bought. We then got offered a loan to renovate the property, only instead of renovating the property, we then went to auction and bought another property. And that started us off with the rental properties. And we just then just kept doing properties up, remortgaging them and buying more properties. And we bought 60 properties within four years. Wow, that's a lot of properties. Hmm. I got made redundant twice. The second time I bought the company because <laughs> I needed a job. Uh, that gave me my wage. So I wasn't a director of the company, but I put the money up to buy it from the administrators. And that ensured I had a job because we had to be earning so much money to keep doing the mortgages. And when we first started, there were no buy-to-let mortgages. They came in at a later stage. So we had to, um, the maximum we could have was five properties. So my husband did five properties a night five properties which gave us 10 and by that stage buy to lets were coming in and that allowed us then to uh, move on and build at a faster rate you mentioned about a story about how you bought your first stock on and your credit card is that right yeah, we um, there's a system called Velocity Banking where you can, um, it's the way you work your bank account and you work your credit cards. The first property that we bought we borrowed £300 on a credit card. That was the maximum amount on the credit card. That's the property I just explained to you how we got a gifted deposit. Uh, the 300 we borrowed on the credit card, we used to pay the solicitor because we had to pay legal fees for the transact, the conveyancing work to be done. And we didn't have the money for that. So we actually bought the very first property with no money. Then we got offered the loan and the loan was what we went and bought at auction. Okay, so the very first deal we did was the £300 we borrowed on the credit card was to pay the legal fees. So what I say is I borrowed £300 on a credit card and turned it into £10 million because that was the very first deal. We did the property up, that released more money, allowed us to start investing in more properties. That must have been amazing to put 300 down and then turn into £10 million over that period of time. I say that was exciting. Yeah, we were just on a roll. And I come back to what I said before, we had a really good team of people around us. You know, we had um, finance brokers, we had a good solicitor, we had, when we needed to remortgage the properties, we had another solicitor that did the remortgaging, all within the same company, they all worked together. We were in uh, Monaco at one stage, and... We got a phone call off an estate agent to say that they had a property that would meet our criteria. Uh, did we want to buy it? We said, have you had a look at it? And they said, yeah, we know the property. And um, we already had property either side of it anyway. So we said, do the deal. Within an hour, 
the broker had already got the finance in place, the valuer had been out and looked at the property, and all the paperwork was with the solicitor. So we've mentioned teams before, and that was the key to us building our property portfolio so fast, was that we had a really good team. And my husband did the renovation work. He had a team of guys that worked with him, and we turned properties around in two to three weeks, maximum four weeks on the property. So, you know, when I've said to you, anything you want to do, you've got to have the right team around you because we couldn't have done that if we didn't have the right team. How did you guys identify the right people to make the right team? By sacking a lot of people who didn't come up to the standard we want. That's all I can say. The number of solicitors that we have sacked is just unbelievable. You know, the hardest thing we found was getting people to understand our timelines and being able to work within those timelines. And solicitors have a tendency to do things in their own time when they're ready. And what we were trying to get through to them was, you might delay a day, that day could cost us £40,000. And they couldn't see that. And so what the team we had was we had sacked so many solicitors that we had one who would come to us and was proactive and say, Karen, I'm ready to do this. Can I go ahead with this now? So they were really proactive. The broker was really good. He was the same. I mean, he earned his money by putting all our mortgage deals together. He got paid commission on the deals. The faster he could get the deals through, the more money he was able to make. So it was in it his interest to make sure he got the right deals for us and got them as fast as possible. And estate agents, we built a really good uh, relationship with estate agents and estate agents would actually come to us and say, we've got this property before the property was even listed on the market. And we'd be looking at it and saying, yeah, we want that. So it never went to market. We were just able to buy it there and then. With all the knowledge and experience you've you've done, and if you went back to do it again from the very beginning, would you do anything differently? No, I don't think so. I think we had such a really good, we got the timing right, we did the deals right. Some of the lenders maybe we might not have worked with because we've had our hassles with some lenders, but the system, and I come back to the system, we had a really good system in place. We had a team in place that worked. And that's what we do. Every time we're doing investments, it's all about getting the system right for it and getting the right team around it. And once we've got that in place, we know that works. Fantastic. And if someone is looking to buy property the first time, what would your advice be to them? Come to one of my training courses and I'll teach you how to do it. (laughs) Do your homework. One of the things that you will see is people will tell you that you will make your money as you go along and this will happen. You make your money when you do the deal. You're not planning five years out or 10 years down the track. You make your money the time you do the deal. So you're investing in property and you're probably investing in shares and gold, but how did your investing club came about? Ah, I write books. I um, love writing. Uh, my dad gave me a journal when I was 11 years old, and so I've kept journals all my life. Um, so I do a lot of writing. 
And then I got into quality management and there's a lot of writing involved with that and it's writing manuals. And I sort of gravitated as a result of that. I sort of gravitated towards writing how-to books. And so I've written, I think I'm on about my 20th, 21st book now. I just teach people through my books how to do the things I've done. And I was at a Toastmasters meeting and this guy came up to me in Toastmasters and he said to me, are you the Karen Newton who wrote this book? And he pulled out a book and it had all these post-it stickers all in different parts of the book. And I thought, uh-uh, you know, am I in trouble here or something? I said to him, yeah, I'm the Karen Newton. And he said, will you coach me? So I started coaching him, and then he said to me, look, um, I've got more friends who would like coaching, and I've got more people that would like coaching, and all this sort of thing. So in the end, I said to him, you're generating a lot of the sales, become my business partner. £2.73 itself, that comes from a story which I learned through uh, Making Money Made Simple, the first book. Well, it's actually in their third book, so from those guys in New Zealand. And the concept of it is that if you put £2.73 a day away, at the end of the year, you'll have a 1000 And if you can invest that 1000 at 14%, by the time you get to year 37, you've made a million. And what we do is we tell people that we can take them through that process much faster. We can teach them the systems. And as long as they use the compounding effect and the leverage, we can teach them how to make their money in a much faster time frame. And when people say to us, I haven't got any money to invest, it's simple. Do you go and get a Starbucks or a cost of coffee or something every day? And if they say yes, well, give up a cup of coffee. £2.73 is all you need to get yourself started. I like that concept, £2.75 for an investment instead of a cup of coffee, which is a great way of thinking about it, you know. And it works It works so well. And I tell the story. It's, it's a it's a fairy tale. It's about a fairy godmother and she teaches someone the power of compounding effect using £2.73. So that's where the whole idea of it comes from. And I contacted the authors and said to them, do you mind if I use this? And they said, no, go ahead. So that was how, that was how the whole concept of it came together. And in writing all these how-to books, uh, when was your first teaching of, of this concept? The first book I wrote, yeah, that was in 2003. So by that stage, um, I'd already retired. I was uh, 43 years old, just coming up to 44, and I retired. I didn't need to work anymore. And that's when the books came out, started writing down everything and thought, God, <laughs> you know, it's only taken us four years to get this far. If people understood this, what could they do? So I wrote the first book. When I wrote it, it was the, mar- the way to market it, publish it. So I went to a guy, his name's Andrew Reynolds. He teaches people how to produce information products. And I started creating information products. That's how the first book came about. I put it in a binder myself. I was Some of them were ring binders. Some of them were the binders that have glue on. And I, I made the books up myself. And I was able to get my books published through Create Space, which is what I did. I then started marketing those. And then in 2014, I got contacted by a company in America 
who were talking about the number of books I'd published and because I was a woman, there wasn't many women who were high profile having made money. And so they wanted to write an article on me. And as a result of writing that article, I actually went on to win an award in America for the books and that just exploded my sales. So my books are now in 11 countries. You mentioned that you retired at that age, but do you see yourself retired? No. (laughs) I got bored. I did retire, but I got bored. (laughs) So I actually know I'm never going to retire. I'll just be keep going and keep going. If I want to take time off, I take time off. The lockdown's been interesting. I've worked harder than I can ever remember. I'm up really early in the morning. I'm still going really late at night. But normally what my husband and I tend to do is we get up early rises, you know, we'll be up at six, like we were out for a walk at six o'clock this morning and we'll knock off about lunchtime and enjoy the sunshine or whatever. But I've just got one of those brains, I've got to keep it active. And someone that probably reached a stage where they became financially free, how do you still continue that drive to keep progressing as an entrepreneur? How do I keep it going? I don't know. I, I just do. I get so many ideas. I thrive off um, listening to other people. I get ideas. One of the things is that I want to take a company onto the share market. That to me is the ultimate investment is to get listed on the share market. So I'm building businesses, building a company and getting everything ready. And my target is another three to three to five years. I'm hoping to have my company on the share market. Wow. That'd be, that'd be exciting when you hit the share market. Yeah. Actually got a meeting uh, next week with a guy who is, fingers crossed, I've had a few false leads so far, but hopefully he's a person who can um, guide me in the right direction for which country to work in and uh, which are the better markets for me to get listed on. And then we've got to restructure the company and move things into a holding company, which will go on the market. So there's a lot of work. There's a lot of challenges in there at the moment. Why do you want your company to be on the share market? Because there's a boat that I want and I have to be a billionaire to get that boat and to be able to afford to run it. <laughs> and the only way I see to become a billionaire is to get my company on the share market. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on the other side, on the other, the flip side of that, I don't believe that, well, it's not I don't believe, I believe anybody can make money if they are taught how to make money. That education isn't out there unless you're wealthy to pay for it. And one of the things with the 273 Club is we keep the cost low. We're franchising that around the world. And the idea is that we'll be able to get that out into a lot of places where there's pretty high poverty. That will help to reduce poverty in the world. Excellent. If someone met you on the street, Karen, and and asked you one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece of advice for what? For life, investing, banking, kind of based on your your knowledge and experience that you've gained over the, the last number of years. I can't say this one piece of advice. What I would say is whatever your dream is, go and do it. Don't ever give up. Just persevere and get the knowledge and the team around you and just go for it. Excellent. And if, if you could give advice to your either your younger self or your older self, what would it be? 
I wouldn't give it to my my younger self. I would actually give it to Robert Kiyosaki and tell him he should have written the books earlier so my younger self would have had those books to read. <laughs> because he was the one who generated, him and Sharon Lecter were the ones who generated the pathway. I had lots of ideas. Their books showed me the pathway to get where I wanted to get. And it was the missing link. The drive was there, but I had a link missing. And it wasn't until his book came out that I had the link that was missing. So if he'd written it earlier, then younger me would have been able to do it sooner. I think it was just the way the time was presented. But I hear what you're saying. You get it younger, you get it faster. Yeah. But then everything comes to us at the time that it's meant to, isn't it? It sure is, you know, but life teaches us as patience. If we're not patient, we don't understand the true lessons of when we get it and when we fully understand it. I'm not patient. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> no, if I want to do something, I've got to go and do it now. And I immerse myself in it and I study at left, right and centre and um, I go and do it now. And in doing that, do you have a, a system of, of identifying information, understanding where to go, the system and, and building it? What I find is that once I get ideas, I note everything down and I I actually do think about it and it might be asleep on something or I might think about it but I have all these notebooks on the side of my bed and one is ideas business ideas another one is book ideas another one is just things I want to remind myself to do the next day I will just go through those and I think right this is the one I'm going to work on now now's this is the right time I used to spend lots of time researching and that would be going down to libraries. Um, if I couldn't get the information I wanted from libraries, when I needed to learn stuff, I'd be going to university. I became what was known as a professional student by my local university in New Zealand because I was there doing absolutely every single course I could to get the information and the knowledge I wanted. These days, if I want something, it's on the internet. I find the course, I do the course. That's it. I just pull out the information that I want and then I build my system. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, this morning I was planning. I, I spent about two or three hours this morning actually going through planning for what I'm going to be doing for the next few months. I have a training course that I'm doing at the moment and so I was in reading up on that training course, listening to videos and then writing my notes down and everything I wanted, then back to my plan. How do I fit that into the plan that I was doing? So this is all the structural stuff that I need for maybe 12 months down the track from now. So I do a lot of pre-planning. Karen, what inspires you to do what you do? I don't know that I've ever really thought that there's something that inspires me. Um, I'm just one of those people who's got a lot of drive and wants to, I don't know, I, I just suppose I like the challenge and maybe that's what it comes down to, like tennis, I love the challenge of tennis I, and maybe that's where it is with business and investing, I like the challenge that it presents. Fantastic. As a big tennis fan, who's, who's your favourite tennis player? I don't follow tennis now, at the time it was Bjorn Borg, he was my era. I gotta admit though Roger Federer is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he's been going as long as he has. I thought that, you know, with his age he would have uh, given up by now, but he's quite uh, incredible the way he's just kept going and going and his game just keeps going up and up. I totally agree with you. 
Karen, if people want to find out more or uh, figure out what you do, where can they find you? I've got a website, which is karennewton.co.uk. And that's probably the best place. There's um, email addresses on there for people to get hold of me. Cool. And if people want to join the £2.70 club, can they find that on your website as well? That's on the website. There's um, information on there uh, about the 273 club. The 273 club does actually have a website. It's being rebuilt at the moment, but it is the number two, the word pound, the number seven, three and the word club. Fantastic. Karen, it's been a pleasure talking with you and thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, Aaron. I've really enjoyed it. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.